0: From 11FS, this is InsureTech Insider News. Today we bring you the Ukraine invasion to likely have substantial impact on the insurance industry. Kin Insurance raises 82 million and compare the market. Meerkat advert pulled over Russian invasion of Ukraine. All this and more on today's show. Hello and welcome to InsureTech Insider, episode 113. I'm Nigel Walsh. Today's show is a new show where we'll be talking about all the most interesting happenings in insurance and insurtech from the past few weeks. Joining me today, as always, my co-host, John Bean, Client Director and Insurance Lead at 11FS. John, how are you doing today?
1: Yeah, I'm very well, Nigel. I think like most people, uh, watching the events unfold around the world with horror. But I guess this is why today's show is very, very relevant in terms of the news that we'll cover off. So uh, it should be a good debate.
0: I hope so indeed. We're also accompanied by some amazing guests. Victoria Roberts, Director of Fintech Delivery Panel and insuretech Board. Welcome back, Victoria. How are you doing?
2: Thank you, Nigel. Um, I'm good. I'm good. Probably equally reflective on uh, current events, but it's very nice to join you for the discussion today.
0: I'm not going to say I'm looking forward to it, but I think it's an important discussion to have. For those that you've not heard you before, can you tell us a little bit more about you and what your role and TechNation do, please?
2: Absolutely. So TechNation is the growth platform for scale-ups in the UK. We support entrepreneurs and their leadership teams to raise their capabilities and their ambitions and we've supported some fantastic intro techs on our fintech program over the years ranging from flood flash Balcane, and through to urban jungle honcho and coin cover now, at Tech Nation, we also look at how to improve the environment for tech scale-ups. And that's through our FinTech Delivery Panel and insuretech Board, which is where I come in. And that brings together insurers such as Aviva, Hiscox, Swiss Re, with Confuse.com, bought by many, Sego and others to look at what projects they can do to make UK insuretech the best it can be.
0: That sounds bloody fantastic. It's like a who's who of the insuretech and insurance world. Thank you again for that. Um, let's get on with the show. So, like everyone we've all been watching the invasion of Ukraine unfold over the last week. We'll look to cover the impact of this on the actual insurance industry as our lead story, but we also wanna express our solidarity with all those impacted on a human level. First up, we're gonna discuss an article from Insurance Journal, which talks about the Ukraine invasion to likely have substantial impact on the insurance industry. Russia's invasion of the Ukraine could add to inflationary pressure and will likely have substantial impact on the global insurance industry, said US rating agency, AM Best. The agency said efforts by the global central banks and the Federal Reserve to contain inflation will be challenged. Plus sanctions may have a severe knock-on effect on oil and commodity prices, as well as tourism and the economies of some of the world's less resilient countries. AMBEST calls sanctions a two-way street. For instance, the UK and other European countries rely on Russia for gas, and there's a very real concern that prices will skyrocket from an already elevated level. Foreign insurers that have reinsurance of Russian carriers, May have recovery difficulties due to invasion," said AMS's commentary. There's a whole host of other immediate uh, impacts on the industry as well. But um, John, let me start with you. What's your take on on some of these as we start as we start this debate off? Yeah, I, th- I think it's going to have,
1: like any insurance. I think, especially when it's of this size and this scale and this catastrophe. I think there's probably four different things you need to look across i mean one is just the exposure what are people limited to uh what are insurance companies limited to what's covered what's not covered and what has anti-war clauses what's actually written into policies and so i think one side is the exposure so of that of the direct impact what are insurers losses I, i think it's incredibly hard to predict at this stage on the flip side it's the indirect impact which is the ripple effect and that goes into a whole heap of different areas, which we'll come on to today. So, you know, from stock market volatility to cyber, to supply chains to inflationary costs. So, I think breaking it down, which we can discuss, is it's across those three different sort of. And then the second, part actually, the last one is the impact of the sanctions. What what does sanctions mean for claims payouts? What happens if someone is sanctioned and you need to pay a claim? So i think there's a lot of unknowns we've we've got a little bit of experience or heritage from what happened with sanctions in crimea several years ago i think also sanctions in iran have probably given people a little bit of a head start insurers in terms of how to deal with this but i don't think we've ever had sanctions of this scale and this level of financial impact so they probably have a step in the right direction but i think we're heading into new territory here
0: i think global brands have been coming out in force uh, and thick and fast actually uh, in fact, there's a couple of examples I'll share, specifically from insurance, Russia's aerospace and aviation sectors. We blocked from accessing insurance to the UK market. Uh, that was a tweet from Rishi Sunak uh, earlier this earlier this uh, this week. Uh, Lloyd's, the world's oldest and largest insurance market, is reporting said that it will back, uh, back fresh sanctions against Russia. Zurich has also released a statement backing the sanctions. And then China has told top state insurers to perform urgent checks on exposure to Russia and Ukraine as concerns swell about the damage to the two economies amid intense fighting. And again, that's back to your point as well, John. Um, Victoria, one, one for you. What, what other immediate impact and statements have we seen from the insurance sector? Have you seen much else with with folks coming out with stuff?
2: So I think when I was thinking about what the response from the industry has been, it's been quite interesting to compare response from um, organisations such as the the ABI versus organisations such as people like Innovate Finance. And I think when you look at the statements ABI making, that's been really focused on customer concerns, reassuring people or signposting them to where they might get more information about potential impacts on their customer or commercial policies. And I suppose that's because the sort of companies that would be members of the ABI would have their big in-house team that would be looking at those really significant questions that John's just outlined around sort of sanctions and claim payments and things like that anyway. But then when you look at organisations like Innovate Finance, they've been doing a lot more to kind of help the, I guess, what would, potentially be smaller companies um, as part of the fintech and insurtech ecosystem to to think about what do you do on um, sanctions implementation what do you do on cyber security for your own company and um, as well as really looking at what the contribution to the humanitarian effort can be now as tech nation we've been playing our part in that so tech nation is designated by the home office to endorse applications for the global talent visa in digital technology and i know the team um, have been Working so hard ever since the beginning of um, what we've seen unravel. And they are prioritising applications from any nationality currently in Ukraine who wishes to be able to leave, as well as any Ukrainians who may have already left the country and be in neighbouring countries as we speak, as well as applications from Russian or Belarusian employees working for UK tech companies who can't currently be paid due to SWIFT sanctions. So um, there's a lot of effort there, I think, right across the piece from understanding, informing, helping, that hopefully as a community we can come together and help people in this um, time.
0: You bring up a really interesting point, which we we weren't going to cover, but, but I will touch on. And that is, I'm amazed with the number of people I've spoken to over the last week, I think, that have had tech teams developing, doing execution, design, code, or otherwise, from the Ukraine and from Russia. And the number of people are now saying the Ukrainian teams are still working but they're in different locations and they're operating from basements or elsewhere but the desire to keep working from a safe and obviously secure area is, is second to none and and the check-ins that go on, on a daily basis to make sure people are okay it it never really sprung to mind the amount of activity that is done from the ukraine and again i was talking to an insurtech yesterday that's core team is based out there and doing development day in day out so your point about visas and and, and access to the UK or other countries I think is super critical uh, again probably not one that we had foresaw in this overall conversation we're having now but equally from a continuity perspective if your development team as you build your businesses based out there it slows you down or changes your trajectory as you move your priority to making sure that your teams are are all safe and well so super uh super concerning from that perspective um the inflation risk is another one that we started off with as well and this is to do I guess this is worldwide escalation, to be fair, and inflation is already rising. Um, states in America have already seen inflationary increases due to the loss of Russian imports and exports. Can we break down this, John, into how inflation impacts the insurance market? Yeah, I mean, I think
1: it's all about, typically, it's all about supply chain and supply chains. Um, And across those supply chains, are costs going up or are they going down? And I think what we're seeing, obviously, with the crisis in Ukraine, particularly with energy prices, gas and oil, um, we're hitting new record levels we've not seen in in, in decades. That's going to have a knock-on impact across the supply chain. Another example uh, I found was actually palladium. It's a key material in the production of catalytic converters. Uh, Russia's a huge exporter of that. Uh, prices have gone up 50% in the last month. So all of a sudden, the ripple effects aren't just on big commercial. You start to see the ripple effects across the whole supply chain, whether that's personalised insurance, commercial insurance, SME business. And it's those inflationary costs, as that uncertainty rises, as things begin to cost more, they eat their way into basic of the supply chain and the repair network and claims and everything else, which in effect then has a knock on impact on obviously on premiums going up and prices going up. So I think the volatility and and because it's unknown how long it will last, people get scared. I think people will start factoring that into any of their pricing
2: typically in inflationary scenarios obviously some it's being driven by um, horrendous events at the moment but um, if, from an industry perspective you sort of tend to say it's probably better for for life insurers than it is for general insurers but then it's almost kind of the opposite for for customers so at least in sort of general insurance scenario you' uh, you've paid your premium up front and your your payout is more likely to be linked to the, the sort of current uh, current value that you would need whereas in life insurance you've perhaps sort of made that commitment for the amount that you would uh, you'd like to be paid out in sort of 10 20 years time and if that's not index linked then uh, the insurer can kind of cover some of that with um, the higher bond yields or um, investment returns but as a, as a customer that might not actually end up meeting what you'd be looking for at the end of the at the end of the day in the event you needed it
1: it's everything at the moment isn't it even, even like the bond yields everything else you know stock, the volatility across the stock market everything is now being impacted whereas once ever you could balance things against each other i think you know the, the whole macroeconomics of this is reverberating around every single industry every single and, and the sanctions themselves are just having knock-on impact so i i think it's a, it's a it's a truly mass event that will have ramifications everywhere
0: couldn't agree more and it's almost on the back of a tough couple of years not just for us all with covid and everything else but for insurance specifically where we've been dealing with getting ourselves back to a, 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 a some level of normality. So it's, it's almost a never ending cancotomy of risk that keeps popping in that's unexpected. And I guess that's, what, that's the whole purpose of insurance at the end of the day is to protect from the unknown and, and, and unwary and, and, and write those things out, which I guess leads us on nicely to our next topic of political risk. So political risk insurance helps organisations conducting business around the world, protect their assets and financial interests from monetary losses due to specified political risks. It's designed to protect a business against arbitrary government actions, such as confiscation, expropriation and nationalism, selective discrimination, forced divestiture, license cancellation and a breach of contract. And plus, I'm sure a whole host more. Is this the new reality, John? Do you think this is what we all have to have or do organisations of certain sizes have it by default as part of business continuity? Um, and then once you've done that, Victoria, maybe one for the insuretech or scaleup community, I can't imagine that all would have this day one, but is that something they may, they may need to reconsider if they're operating across across borders? John, do you want to go first?
1: I think it's a bit like what cyber was several years ago. Where I can imagine the big the big organisations, the big players, is sort of, you know, would you like fries with that? Would, would you like this political risk? And I think most of them would probably say yes. You know, to terrorism cover and all sorts. I think they're probably added on that. The fear is. Your small, medium sort of enterprise, your lower ones where they've got much more price sensitivity, probably don't have this cover. So I think as a cover, yes, it will exist. I can imagine it exists in the big corporations, big conglomerates. The lower end of the scale, I don't think it will, which and I think all of those will be exposed.
0: And Victoria, from the scalar perspective, is this something that we're going to start to see as a requirement or or mandated by investors or otherwise as they look to operate in those geographies? And as a net result, does that make them Harder to be successful, or is it just another cost of doing business for them?
2: It's a really interesting one, isn't it? And I must profess, I'm by no means an expert in political risk insurance. I'd be quite intrigued, really, to sort of understand to what extent the sort of uptake has that uh, that has been. And um, it feels it feels a little bit possibly like mobile phone insurance as a customer. Like it's a great thing to have, but it's quite expensive. So it's at the point where actually you could take out political risk insurance as a smaller company. But if you're actually you know, ensuring against the risk that your entire business assets get nationalised or sort of wiped out by sanctions. So the price of that policy is going to be so huge that that's going to be a bit of um, a bit prohibitive as well. So um, I, I I don't know where the balance lies in terms of um, I'm sure it would be a nice to have, but where the cost um, the cost factor comes in will clearly be an important decision.
1: No, I agree, and 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 that nice to have almost becomes a you must have. I think you know I don't think anybody ever foresaw where we were going to end up in this conflict. I don't think anyone foresaw a war in Europe uh, escalating like this. And you start to wonder where will it go next? And to that point, nice to have it. It's a bit like terrorism cover. Suddenly does it become a everybody must have it. And actually how, how do you cover that? And I think certain parts of the world it will, you know, people will start to wake up to say, actually where there is conflict or where there is even even the remotest chance of conflict, does this just become a must-have?
0: Or you change the territories in which you operate and that you go through, given proximity or target addressable market or otherwise. But again, that's a that's a fundamental business change. As a small organisation, then if 50% of your market is Ukraine or Russia, then you've got a uh, then you've got a big challenge ahead, perhaps, and have to rethink your whole your whole strategy. As a large organisation, though, with sanctions imposed, many organisations have pulled out of certain markets, which I guess moves this on to. So exactly that, moving out of the market. So trade credit insurers who provide financial safety nets for exports and imports are pulling back from covering businesses exporting to Ukraine and Russia following Moscow's invasion. Companies buy trade credit insurance if they supply goods or services or other businesses on credit to protect against if the risk will not get paid or not. So trade credit is going to be absolutely huge. And given the volume, the speed and the scale at which organisations Uh, large and small have now pulled out. This is a really, really interesting one. So I think there was was an article uh, just last week as well, talking about how we have to price the market accordingly, given that these new risks have materialised accordingly. So trade credit has been around for for, forever. These things have now materialised. Therefore, going forward, buying trade credit is going to be much more expensive. John, what's your view? Do companies have options? Other than moving back from the market? Certainly not an expert in this space. I
1: mean, uh, you could always do payment up front is probably the most obvious. So that aside, because I don't know what all the options are. But I think what markets became very, very good at is there was always a way to kind of move money. There was always a way. They became very, very resilient to avoiding losses through sort of payment restructuring. Uh, and, and I think throughout the years, they've found lots and lots of different ways to be creative with regards to payment. And, and I think markets just do that. What I do wonder, though, is in this instance, with just the scale of the sanctions, is that going to be more difficult? So that whole restructuring and, and is the only choice to pull out, because I think historically there was always ways around it. There's always lots of different methods, but the, the scale of the sanctions how well they're hidden, the shell company. Ultimately, the onus comes on the companies to almost police themselves with sanctions, which is what makes sanctions very, very difficult. Because you're both the detective and the officer, or the the police officer, if you see what I mean. And you can be the one that's liable for the fine. So, I think if people have and you know this, you know hidden shell companies within shell companies within shell companies, I think. If they're having difficulty in restructuring these payments and the sanctions bite so hard or become so difficult, and I know a lot of the insurance companies have come out and said, look, we will take the operational hit, we will do the right thing, we will do the due diligence, but it gets to a point, if it becomes too hard, it is the only option to back out until there's some more stability in in the market.
0: Well, I think you've always got to take a multi-pronged approach to this, the short, medium and long term, the short term being there is no option. The sanctions are in place and you cannot go against those, therefore that's materialised a loss for a number of people that have provided trade credit insurance, therefore the claims that will come through and how quickly they can be paid to support the businesses that are incurring a loss right now. The medium term, and Victoria mentioned this a a while back around the talent that's out there and helping folks that are are there, number two. But I guess the medium to long-term piece is all around, what does this do to my market and how long is it gonna last for? If your insurance market was 30%, 20%, 50%, Russia, Ukraine, or elsewhere, what does that do for your uh, market or opportunity going forward if you can no longer operate in those places? And we, as, I said, as I said, we've seen every organisation from consulting through technology, uh, number one, look after their people and get them to safety and number two, uh, abide to the uh, European and global sanctions that have been imposed. So it's going to be fascinating to see what that does at a, a, a at a, a larger level over the next two, three, five years and where people then focus or or double down Um, efforts. Last one, I guess, on this for now, I know it's been a a whirlwind tour through some of the things that are going on, is cyber. And actually, this is a really interesting one because many people thought that the next war, should it ever happen, would be a digital and cyber war, not a physical war. And I think we're actually seeing a a strong combination of the two here. This has put significant pressure on the global cyber market. And we have seen a number of malicious attacks expected from state-linked actors, which could create risk for multinational organisations where critical infrastructure or otherwise are targeted around data loss and business disruption. Victoria, one for you. Do we we think these insurers have a responsibility to accept claims regardless of things like war exclusion in the same way that we did for COVID, where we had non-denial of access and business interruption where COVID wasn't necessarily specified or, or an infectious disease was specified? Do we have to follow the letter of the law here? or What what do you think will happen?
2: I can certainly see it becoming very complicated very quickly. I don't know how long it takes to sort of determine the actual source of a particular um, cyber attack, and I suppose that would be one element of it. But um, you're exactly right, where we saw exclusions for business continuity, um, for pandemic and business continuity policies um, uh, ahead of the pandemic. That's certainly something which, depending on the company and depending on the wording, um, was subsequently taken through legal proceedings to um, explore um, exactly, I suppose, what what that should look like in terms of uh, Claims being paid, so um, I could imagine this could uh, very quickly become just as uh, just as complicated. And there were obviously some companies um, in that instance who decided that they were able to um, honour those claims. There were others that didn't feel in a position to do so um, and took it more to the the sort of letter of uh, letter of the of the policy. And I'm sure we'd probably see a combination of the two going forward if this were the case.
0: I think it points back to the exact same issue we had with the BI case, which was policy wording. So we're not always sure what we've actually written sometimes, and there's an opportunity for technology and insurers to get together and solve this for once and for all. As these things we keep popping up, we can't keep relying on paper-based and everything else to, to go solve this. Um, that's it for this story. There's a whole host more to go into, I'm afraid, but let's uh, let's come back to that on another show. For now, we're going to take a quick break. Back very soon.
1: Here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services, and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or somebody you know are up for a challenge and fancy working for one of Flex's most flexible companies, come check out our open roles. We have roles in growth, product, sales, talent, and more. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. That's
0: 11fs.com. Forward slash careers.
1: Welcome back, we'll be moving away from the immediate situation in Ukraine for the time being. Uh, we'll pop back later at the end of the show, but we'll definitely come back to this subject over the coming months as appropriate. Now we're going to take a look at some of the biggest insurance stories from the rest of the world. So up next, Kin Insurance. A U.S. insurtech and primary carrier focused on home insurance for catastrophe-exposed areas has raised $82 million in the first closed of its Series D funding round, with additional commitments for a second closed totaling $18 million. The insurtech, which has raised a total of $133 million in equity funding prior to this, will use the latest investment to recruit across its departments, expand its suite of insurance products, and expand into additional states. Currently, it operates in Florida. Louisiana, and California, and is poised to launch in several new markets in 2022. So how big is the market? CEO Sean Harper told TechCrunch that among its 110 billion home insurance market, half of the homes in the regions are exposed to extreme weather and fire. So Nigel, I guess one up for you is... Are we past the point where this could be considered niche? It's,
0: niche is an interesting one. I think what Sean's done, and for, for those who want to hear what Sean said, check back I think episode 81 of Tech Insider, where he was on the show. Um, great organisation. I think we're well beyond niche in that they've got a scalable business here. They're only in three or four states right now and have a massive opportunity ahead of them. So I think there's a it's a well-known and clear risk when you talk about things like extreme weather and fires, wildfire throughout California, Uh, and and many other areas in the US and actually globally, is a well-documented and known risk. How we get to it from an insurance or insurtech perspective is usually as an added cover to one's standard policy. So I think whilst you've called it niche, it's well known enough that most folks that can or do live in these areas would always have this sort of cover.
1: Yeah, and according to Harper, I mean, what he came back with is why they can differentiate themselves or offer this cover, I guess, more personalized, I don't want to say better or cheaper, more personalized is probably the right word, is because they make up for it in terms of the data. So one of the issues with legacy data can be less of quality when it comes to personalization. What they're allowed to do is with their data, they can more accurately predict uh, and give better policies. Do you think, Victoria, this is the, is it data that makes the difference? And is it incumbent companies struggle to offer these particular policies?
2: I think data will be a key driver in being able to um, expand the coverage for things like natural catastrophes because it will lead to a greater personalisation. Um, so some people who might have been excluded previously might therefore be able to um, get cover or get cover um, in a way that they're able to afford it. Um, it feels like a, an evolution of um, initiatives that we've, we've seen previously. Things like the Aviva flood map was uh, heralded um, sort of 10, 15 years ago for uh, attempting to sort of do something similar uh, and much more detailed in in the UK when it comes to flooding. Um, So I think um, the means are certainly increasingly available, whether it's satellite or drones or um, sensors. Um, It certainly makes sense to take advantage of that in the underwriting process. It'll need um, actuaries to sort of embrace that new data. And it will also mean having an eye to people that might actually find that they are excluded because for some people it will bring benefits and for some people uh, it may mean that actually their house is identified as one that isn't a good uh, risk to take and that's where we've seen initiatives like flood re in the uk so it'd be interesting to sort of will you get hurricane re or there may already be in in the states um for, for those people who actually for personalization that doesn't work so well for them
1: yeah and one of the other differentiators they've been able to do is go direct to the customer and to provide that personalized experience direct Nigel, do you think, I mean, and, and looking back across the U.S., a lot of insurances sold via agents. Do you think this different business model, the direct model, works well? And do you, do you think it's the end of local agents in these areas?
0: You've got two things there for me. One is going direct, and two is the the end of the agents. The going direct piece for me is, a, as an Irishman living in England and about to go to the States, that I've had, what, 20 years of digital price comparison websites, self-service, and so much more, I can't see anyone doing anything but this. Going going direct is the most convenient way by taking middlemen out of the out of the equation for things that are easy. For us, let's put it into a different perspective. We go online to buy our groceries, our stuff, our clothes and gadgets, whatever else it might be. And if you're like my household and you're buying new clothes or whatever it might be, you might order, order multiple sizes because the fits are quite different. You've in essence got a boutique at your door and the process that really matters is the returns process. So my wife's brilliant at working out which shops are easy to return to, which ones are a pain in the backside to return to, but that digital level of service and personalization means I get a full stock store at home without having to pay for it any one time. The, the correlation to insurance is we've got to be able to provide those options in a self-service, easy to use way, where all these retailers worked out ways to get to my house with the things that I want. And if I buy nine things, I'm going to keep two of them and send seven back what's the equivalent for insurance? The flip side to that is, is it the end of local agents? Not necessarily. Now, there will be elements of it where some people, a more educated or more time rich group of people will be able to take the time to educate on what those risks are, understand what they need and um, do it all themselves online because that's what they want to do. Think of it as buying a package holiday versus buying all the individual bits yourself because you want the transfer, you want the hotel, you want the flight. The other side to that coin is there are people always out there that want to buy from people that have a trusted agent, have had them for 5, 10, 20, 30 years in some cases, and actually are advised by the agent to say, actually, someone like you does or doesn't need this cover. And I think the risk has changed from X to Y this year, and either you should or shouldn't get it. So I think there's it's it's dependent on the cohort or the individual about what you buy and how you buy. As an example, I'm a hugely digital first type individual, but when it comes to certain financial products, investments, mortgages, and all that sort of stuff, I might do some more research, but I always go through a broker or agent because, I find that they deal with that sort of stuff day in, day out, and I might deal with it once every five years.
2: It almost feels like there's an additional third way to be considered as well, because there's there's the direct and then the agent or the broker, but I don't think we should ignore the increasing trend of embedded finance in this place as well. So um, it might be that um, you know your contents insurance starts to come through those um, those retail purchases, Nigel, when your wife's wardrobe gets to the extent that you need to uh, need to start to protect your investment in it, then. Maybe uh, maybe you'll be taking out insurance at the point of sale so, rather than going um, sort of direct online for your, your contents insurance or something like that. So.
0: You've raised a really good point. You could flip it around as well and you could say if you're buying fire protecting for your property because you know you're in a wildfire zone, the insurance comes embedded into the fire protecting rather than the other way around as well. I think that's a really interesting debate to have around what came, it's almost like what came first, like right? the chicken or the egg. Do I protect the house from the fire and then back it up with insurance just in case? Or do I buy insurance that has fire protecting as a, as a value added service?
1: I mean, you you could even extend this further. I mean, you, you know, you could extend this to kind of peer to peer community groups. I mean, you, you look at lack of what's done in the cycling world. If you suddenly have homeowners all living in a, in a high risk area, I mean, one, the insurer wouldn't want to insure all of them next door to each other, but saying that what's the risk prevention and you can have communities built around what risk prevention states could come up and actually you take it beyond just a, a distribution of a product and actually how do we move into the whole risk prevention piece very interesting i think in terms of distribution i agree i think there will always be direct i think there will always be advised agents i think there will be other distribution channels coming and they'll gain prominence like embedded i think the key is you know what is the right product for the right time at the right place for you Uh, And I think that's as an industry where they have to offer different means uh, to appeal to different segments and different customer groups. Just one final point. If you'd have been following Kin's story, many will have noticed that they were poised to merge with Omnichannel Acquisition Corp, a special purchase to go public back in last January, I believe. The company decided not to move ahead with the deal. Harper said part of it was the public market conditions were not great. Nigel, coming to you, why do you think they backed out of this decision? Was it brave uh, or is there a growing trend within insurance and the insure tech of what we've seen with the likes of Lemonade and the and the IPO and the share price? What do you think are the reasons for Kin's pullout?
0: I, the whole SPAC um, spectacular, can I, can I say that? Is that too cheesy? The whole SPAC um, conversations and debates that are going on have been up and down for the last couple of months. I was actually with Adrian Jones uh, earlier this week in, in in New York, listening to something he was saying about the number of people that are going, the capital that was in the market and so much more. And I think we've just got to find the right opportunity at the right time for these folks. We've seen a few, I, I followed what Wejo were doing here in the UK um, through their special purpose acquisition vehicle and many others. I'm just not sure it's right for everyone. And if you listen to people like Professor Galloway or Scott Galloway from Pivot and, and many more, there is a concern that all of these will come crashing down at some point. So the rush to get to public is really, really interesting. SPACs help you get there through a lower level of, I want to say, paperwork through consolidation and, and, and much more. But it's not always right. So it was trending hot for a while, but I think it's cooled down quite quite considerably. And given others' performance, to your point, Maybe they just felt it wasn't the right thing to do at this moment in time. I I don't know. It's it's just speculation, nothing more.
1: Well, I think it was a very brave decision by Kin. It was possibly the right decision. Either way, it looks like they're going from strength to strength in terms of their funding. Uh, They've got a great product and we're big supporters of Kin on this channel. So um, keep up the good work. Moving on. Next, we're moving over to the African continent as we look at African health tech startup. Susu raises two million euros in pre-seed funding. So global health tech company, Susu, focused on making healthcare accessible and affordable for every African. It's completed a two million pre-seed funding round with angel investors. Susu offered bundle health services that provide patients with planned long term health support to ensure optimal monitoring of their health conditions, including pregnancy, child care and chronic disease management. The startup is currently operational in Côte d'Ivoire, Cameroon and Senegal. Susu was founded in 2019 by Bola Bada after she lost her father to complications of chronic health condition due to poor management. Her experience with her father's condition inspired Bola to help others avoid the same fate. Alongside her co-founders Lauren Leconti and Sadrine Egron, Bola has built the startup to serve thousands of Africans. So I guess the first discussion point: is are hugely underserved when it comes to both healthcare and health insurance the medical insurance penetration rate is less than 3% in Africa against a global norm of just under 8%. Nigel, I'll come to you first. Should insurers be doing more in this market?
0: Without question. I think India, Africa, uh, Latin America, part of my predictions for this year, I still haven't published on actually, these are the absolutely biggest opportunities for insurers. We've had a whole host of folks on the shows before around Cadogan societies and, and much more. These are in many cases previously seen as luxury products and now becoming more affordable to the to different societies. So I think it's a massive opportunity. What we need now is the right products that fit the right market. We can't take Western products and just drop them into into these markets but these new products that have been developed by startups like Susu, I think are absolutely outstanding. And we can now start to unlock and create opportunity for both startups and consumer in this space.
1: I couldn't agree more Nigel. I think the lack of flexible, affordable products is, is paramount and not just taking over Western products. I think equally poor reputation, a general distrust of insurers, poor customer experience and unpaid claims probably all help contribute to the lack of take up. All things that we've experienced in the actually in west and, and some of the things that we still experience but we're starting to get a handle on one of the other things that they do incredibly well is changing the payment model for insurance in africa uh, and this is crucial users are still required most times to pay out of pocket ahead of insurance payouts and that's where susu tends to be different in addition to allowing patients to finance their bills susu proposes a collective financing solution where family members living locally or in the area can also help patients finance their monthly subscription fees via care bundles. Victoria, do you think this shows more affinity with the culture of the market they're aiming to serve?
2: I think in some ways, absolutely. And um, this is something we've seen replicated, not just in insurance, but when it comes to establishing savings pots, for example, that um, that would be something that might be more pooled across families or communities. And there are fintechs who are already active, looking to help people to sort of formalise um, their, uh, their savings and investments in that space on this basis. So um, extending that over to insurance, would feel natural and like a positive next step and it always strikes me that uh, there's there's probably learnings that we could take for innovative new insurtech products on that basis, perhaps back uh, over in um, in the United Kingdom as well. So I think it would be really interesting to see sort of some of the more community-based learnings that can be taken from these kind of developments, and but uh, um, see what could uh, see what could come from that here as, as well.
1: I couldn't agree more, and I think it's. Uh... I think that customer centric approach when understanding your market, understanding your customers and developing products with that at the heart um, allows them to come up with new payment models like this. I'm going to go slightly off piece, Nigel, away from my questions and ask a, a, a general sort of customer question. Where we've got mass commoditization of products, do you think we can actually do customer centric design in terms of those products or are they always going to be mass commoditized? Do, do you think there is an opportunity to go further and do more?
0: There, there is, but it's back to Victoria's point earlier about embedded, if it's commoditized and people don't necessarily, I'm going to say care about it, which is one of my big bugbears, as you know, then there's no reason why we just can't commoditize it, embed it, and it work. Let's not personalise for personalisation's sake if it doesn't need to be done. But if there's an opportunity to layer on it something that's specific for John, specific for Victoria, uh, in health specifically, my wife was saying to me, uh, a few weeks back, we were looking at individual health checkups and stuff like that. And one of our, our providers had a general checkup for people in their 40s. Obviously, I'm 20, so we're looking, you know, further on. Uh, but for people in their 40s, it was it was a common check for men and women. And my wife is going, but I'm 40, and I've had two children, and you've not. So it's not personalised enough. So specifically in medical, I think we have to take the context and the data that we have into account to drive the right product. A wildfire hitting a house per previous story is a wildfire hitting a house. But the checkup that you and I require is very different to the checkup that Victoria requires from a health perspective, or should be at least, I think. I'm no expert in medical or health, but at the... But the the layman's context view would say, actually, there's things here that are unique to each of us.
2: As somebody who's had two children, I can definitely say that despite being 40, I feel a lot closer to about 65 right now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm making no comments whatsoever for my own safety. (laughs) You
1: you certainly don't look it on camera for those listening. (laughs) So what are SUSU's future plans for funding? SUSU intends to grow its team and introduce new features with its recent funding. The company would launch its services across six more countries in sub-Saharan Africa, including Nigeria and Ghana. Does international expansion make sense for a problem like this where it's solving for a pan-African issue, Nigel?
0: I think possibly, and I'm pausing in that, I think you have to work out the market they have access to today is almost gargantuan. So would they need to expand internationally today and not just go a mile deep and an inch wide where they are, rather than skimming the surface of already complicated or mature markets elsewhere. So it depends on where they go, I guess, next. Is there there other similar markets that they can easily access and take the top of it off, or they have to end up competing with more mature markets where the product might be, you know, one of many, 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 versus unique to the individual space. So it's a consulting answer, I'm afraid, in terms of it depends, but I would, it almost goes back to the, do a couple of things really, really well. And that might be focus on your territory and do that really, really or your geography and do that really, really well, or focus on the market and the product you've created and do that across multiple places. I don't know.
1: Yeah, so, so Victoria, do you foresee any issues in this? Do you think product market fit per region will will be a problem, or have you seen that be a problem anywhere else? Outside of sort of Africa in, in Western Europe or in America?
2: Yes, I think it probably talks about what level we're looking at. Is it a country? Is it region? And, um, there's, you can know, take the European Union as a, an example there. There's a, there's a coherent set of rules for many products across, um, the EU, but there's still very many nuances when it comes to either the products and propositions that exist in the individual countries, the, sort of cultural aspects of what people are established to uh, expecting or wanting from their products. So, um, well, it seems like a a great vision, I'm sure, uh, on the ground when it comes to uh, marketing, if not deeper into proposition and product, there may always be a need to uh, adapt to your customer.
1: I couldn't agree more. And, And I think they're doing great things. I think, to your point, Nigel, establishing a base and getting a strong platform before you look either to go further deeper and expanding that those features out or skimming the surface will largely depend on how much of a product market fit there is per region. But they'll have to do their research. Um, what we can say for SUSO is they've had some great growth, some strong growth in 2021, 5000 strong customer base, which grew five times last year. growth. And revenue also increased more than 400% in 2021. So they're obviously on the right track and doing some great things, and we wholly support them. Moving into our final segment, I'm going to hand back to you, Nigel.
0: Fantastic. Thank you, John. And finally, a slight twist on our very first story, but compare the market meerkat adverts pulled over Russian invasion of Ukraine. This is from the Newspaper the Mirror. A uh, well-known compare-the-market adverts featuring meerkats with Russian accents have been pulled from TV news programming due to Russian invasion of Ukraine. The adverts, which feature fictional wealthy Russian meerkat Alexandra Orlov and a cast of supporting characters, have been running since 2009. But now the Meerkat, or sorry, compare-the-market says it will temporarily pull the adverts from appearing next to TV news and content related to the Russia-Ukraine war. It says it is doing so to be sensitive to current conflict. So, Victoria, is this an overreaction or a sensible step? What do you think?
2: Well, Nigel, clearly that's been um, integral to their brand. And I I think all I would say to that is very simply, as in so many aspects of life and business at the moment, it will be really important in all that we do to distinguish between the Russian driving force behind the current conflict that we are seeing in Ukraine and um, the Russian people themselves. And I think the decision would need to be made on that basis, based on how uh, that particular company interpreted their responsibility in that sense.
0: It makes sense. It makes sense. John, this says the campaign is only suspended for areas next to TV news for now. And you can understand why, given what's going on in the news but it said it was examining its marketing and would be sensitive to where it plays the advert, which featured the Russian meerkat named Alexandra. Could this be this end of the road for the campaign as a whole, do you think? I don't think so. I think that I mean,
1: they've had massive success in taking a product called Compare the Market and, and putting a meerkat against it. I mean, <laughs> the, two, the two just don't go together and they've had unbelievable success with it over the years. I think people associate probably more with a meerkat than a Russian oligarch. Um, I think, yes, the TV advertisements have the Russian accent. I don't think people associate it necessarily with the war. Um, If you saw a meerkat in a poster or on online web chat, you wouldn't necessarily think Russia. So I, I do think it will still continue. I think the brand is so strong. I think the association is so strong. But I do agree with Victoria. I think in terms of appropriation of where you place it, I think it's right that they pause it. I just think where well, you've got massive companies pulling out of the region, irrespective of whether it's the Russian people or the driving forces of the war, people are, are so sensitive. You know, we've seen Coca-Cola pull out, McDonald's pull out. You know, you've got BP potentially dropping billions, distancing themselves from companies. So, you know, the whole world is making an effort to sort of distance themselves up. I think it's right that they pause it and be sensitive. Um, I don't think it will kill it as a brand because I don't think it's got an abbreviation with, with that side of thing. Um, I think it's it, it's the strength of just the meerkat against the market.
0: I think very much like the COVID early days where people associate wrongly, so Chinese individuals with, uh, with, with COVID, it almost unfairly linked or otherwise or unnecessarily linked people or tarred everyone with the same brush, which wasn't right or correct. And I, I'm with you, I understand the sensitivity. I think we all know in today's society, you're never gonna please everyone all the time. Um, so it's a really difficult balance. Interestingly, Orlov's autobiography, A Simple's Life, The Life and Times of Alexandra Orlov, had more pre-orders before publication than the life stories of Tony Blair, Cheryl Cole, Russell Brand or Danny Minogue. I'm actually quite dis- disappointed about Danny Minogue, never, never mind. Um I think you know. Interesting. That just goes to show they have created an amazing brand over the last decade that people have loved. I genuinely said it wasn't a uh, on purpose accident by any stretch of the imagi- imagination. I it genuinely felt like you know. Compare the meerkat is exactly what you see. You go to London Zoo or any other zoos, you see one and you see instantly associated with, with with what's going on there. So it'll be interesting to see how it unfolds um but again i agree 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 with your points there that's it for today's show a a tough show to say the least with lots of ramifications and implications for insurance short medium and long term especially as the world starts to work out what's going on over the next couple of months weeks years and much more that wraps up the news for this time where can our listeners find out more about you victoria let's start with you
2: you can find out more about the work of TechNation by following us on Twitter at TechNation. And I'm there too at PolicyVix.
0: John, what about you? Uh,
1: you can find me at John Bean on LinkedIn, it's probably the best place. Else you can come to 11FS and find me there as well.
0: Fantastic. And you can find me on Twitter at Nigel Walsh. Victoria thank you for joining us today thank you for listening folks if you like what you've heard subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review it helps to make the better and helps others find the show too as always if you want to join the conversation find us on social media just search for 11 colon fs or insurtech insider find us on twitter at insect insiders fintech insider or on tiktok or email podcasts at 11fs.com thanks very much and goodbye